Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Amen, and uh, good morning to each and every single one of you. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you, uh, if you saw this make the rounds on social media in the last month, but this, uh, this story came across my Twitter feed this week and it got me thinking. It's a story out of uh, Brazil uh, where two men, two politicians, got into a fight. And I know I'm going to butcher these names, and uh, so if you politicians from Brazil are listening, I am so sorry uh, about the pronunciation of your names. One of them was the mayor of Borba, which is a good-sized city in the state of Amazonas, uh, Samoa Piexto, and uh, he got into a fight with a former council member, uh, Erneo de Silva, all right? and they were disputing over the management, or maybe you could say the mismanagement, of, uh, by the mayor of a certain water park in that city. Uh, the formal council member, De Silva, had for months been accusing the mayor of being a crook and for stealing the resources that were supposed to go to maintain the water park. And uh, Chris, is my PowerPoint up here? Let's get this up here because I want to show you this. These two, these two men decided to debate the merits of the case in an old school way <laughs> in an MMA ring. Uh, you can go watch all 13 minutes of the three-round fight on YouTube, uh, but from all accounts, it was not an enjoyable fight. Uh, both men were easily gassed, and the Canadian uh, newspaper, the National Post, put it this way, that the men were tired and off-kilter as long stretches of vigorous but unskilled grappling punctuated the matches. <laughs> During the fight, both men were able to knock down their opponent, and the former council member delivered most of the blows. And so after three rounds of fighting, the, uh, the guardian called uh, this fight, he called it shambolic. <laughs> I love that word, shambolic, right? Uh, the mayor was declared the winner of the fight, leading to some to say that the refereeing of the fight was uh, fixed. The two fighters hugged it out in the end, and from all accounts, the dispute is now settled. <laughs> Good old-fashioned way to solve disagreements, right? A fight, right? Let's not, and, and you thought politics in the United States was a circus. <laughs> I, I, bring, I bring this up not to mock politicians in Brazil or, or at home. I, I bring it up because it reminded me that as believers, our struggle against sin is to be a fight, uh, our fight against sin is hopefully not shambolic or, or punctuated with unskilled grappling. <laughs> our fight against sin is a fight that has in all actuality been won for us already. But even still, this fight must be fought every day. Every day we must step into the ring and duke it out with our sin, even though it's a fight that has been won for us by Jesus. And uh, I hope you're not too confused kind of by those seemingly contradictions, but that's what the Apostle Paul wrestles with in, in Romans chapter 6. That's what, that's what he grapples with here. 
And he points out that in Jesus Christ, believers, followers of Jesus are dead to sin. And because of that reality, we have been united to Christ, made alive in Christ, and now live under his reign of grace. Our sermon text begins with uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. But to set the stage, we're going to need to back up a little bit to Romans 5 and start at verse 20. Uh, because in that verse, Paul addresses the question that he sets out to answer in Romans 6.1. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I believe it's on page 886 in your pew Bible. And would you join me in standing as I read God's word? Beginning again, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, then into chapter 6. But now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life as your member, and your members to God as instruments for, unright, or for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. And as Paul grapples with uh, sin and death and life and resurrection in these verses, Lord, and, and as he acknowledges the, uh, the struggle that all of us face, Lord, and as we battle our sin, as we fight our sin, help us to continue to look to the cross and look to Jesus and what he has done for us. It's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If Paul was a composer, the book of Romans would be his magnum opus. If, if he were a movie producer, this would be his full-length feature film. The book of Romans is where Paul lays out uh, systematically and at length the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. It's a truth that's displayed all throughout the New Testament, but, but here in his letter to the church in Rome, it gets the full treatment it deserves. And as we jump into chapter 6 and, and the end of chapter 5 of, of Romans, we're jumping past five chapters of Paul's thoughts. 
Uh, We've jumped into season six without really knowing what's happened the previous five seasons, right? And so in in those first five chapters of Romans, Paul lays out the case, again, very systematically, that our salvation is not by works, but only by grace alone through faith. We're saved not because of the good things that we do. You're saved not because you're coming to church and reading the Bible. You're saved not because you help little old ladies across the street or shovel them out on cold winter days. Those things are good, but they don't save you, right? Uh, You're saved purely, Paul says, because of God's mercy and because of God's grace. And that salvation then is received, again, not because of anything that you do, but it's received by faith, received by faith in, in, uh, in Jesus Christ. And that's what he spends, again, these, these first five chapters in Romans telling us, But unfortunately, there were some who heard this truth and then came to a wrong and and really a dangerously wrong conclusion. They concluded that since God freely forgives sins through Jesus, shouldn't we just keep living our lives as sinners and keep living in our sins so that God's grace might continue to come to us? In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more, the greater the sin, then the more and the greater God's grace would be to forgive those sins, right? That was the logic, the wrong, dangerous logic. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who was executed in a Nazi concentration camp for his opposition to Hitler, this is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, grace without price, grace without cost, grace without sacrifice. And that's the impetus behind Paul's question in in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? How does he answer? He says, by no means. If you've got the uh, the old King James translation there, how do they translate that? It says, God forbid, right? The the Greek phrase is is a strong negation, a strong no, definite and complete no, absolutely not. There is no way. Believers should not in, in any way and for any reason continue to live in open sin. And Paul will spend the rest of our sermon text this morning talking about why we shouldn't. And all throughout these 14 verses, Paul makes the case that we, believers in Jesus, have died to sin. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? We're going to really unravel that phrase all morning long. But in short, to be dead in our sins means that we are no longer living in open sin. Our our lives are no longer openly, publicly um, uh, doing sin, proudly rebelling against the Lord and sinning against our neighbor, right? Those of us who have been bought and redeemed by Jesus' blood should not enjoy sin. Being dead to sin means that sin no longer holds its sway over you. To be dead to sin means that when we sin, and yes, we still do sin, don't we? Uh, But when one who has died to sin sins, that person repents, acknowledging their sins, turns from it, and strives to do better. And that's really what the promise in verse 14 is all about. But before we get there, we need to really start at the beginning. So first in in verses 1 through 4, Paul says that you are dead to sin because you have been united to Christ. Look at these verses again. I know I just read them, but I want to put them before us. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Yes, there it is. I'm sorry, I didn't have that on there. But those who, those who came to the, to the wrong, dangerous conclusion that we should sin more so that God can forgive sin more were trying to, as if it were, coerce God out of more grace. They, they re- wrongly reasoned, if I sin more, then God has to forgive me more. I can go on sinning and God will have to forgive me, right? My anger isn't a problem because God is merciful and he can forgive that. What's one more night spent in drunk because, right, God is merciful and he can forgive that. I'll just keep looking at pornography because God is merciful and he can forgive that. But Paul says that forgiveness and grace and mercy, they don't work that way. You cannot coerce God to, to manufacture more grace can't, for you. Can God forgive every sin? Yes, of course, right? That doesn't mean, however, that we should commit every sin so that God can forgive every sin, Right? The Lord will not be coerced into forgiving flagrant and open-handed sins. And yet God's grace, while it cannot be coerced, God's grace is, is freely given. And it's given to those who humble themselves, who, to those who repent and return. God's grace, Paul says in these verses, is given in baptism because in baptism we are united with Jesus Christ. Look again at these verses. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We have been united with him in a death like his, Paul says. Far from being simply just a sign or a symbol of our devotion to God, in baptism we are united in Christ, with Christ. We have been buried with him in baptism. We are united with him. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that as many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ Jesus. In baptism, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And in the Lutheran church, we talk about baptism being a means of grace, right? Baptism along with the Lord's Supper are the means, are the, the avenues, the channels, the pathways by which God's grace comes to you. The primary way of which God's grace comes to you is through his word, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But the Lord has added to this two visible, tangible means by which his grace comes to you. And we call those secondary means of grace because we know about them through his word. Think of, it, think of it like this, right? God's grace isn't just sitting in heaven in some ethereal jar waiting to be mystically zapped into you somehow. It comes through means. It comes through avenues. It comes through channels. Um, yeah, think, think about it this way here too. I... <clears throat> I have coffee in this coffee mug, right? I, I know you can't see it. You're just going to have to believe it's there. Take my word for it. It's a little bit cold because it's been sitting here for the whole service, but that's all right. <laughs> the coffee is the good stuff, right? It's the stuff that we want. It's the stuff that we need. But how did I get my coffee? 
It came from the Keurig this morning, right? But I didn't pour it straight into my mouth or I didn't uh, inject the caffeine straight into my bloodstream. I I wish I could, right? But (laughs) the coffee comes to me through means, through the avenue, through the pathway, through the channel of the coffee cup, right? And, And God's grace is like that coffee in more ways than one. God's grace is the good stuff that we want, that we need, that we are addicted to. And God's grace comes to you through means of his word, through means of the sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why we call baptism one of the means of God's grace. In baptism, God gives you his grace. God unites you with you. You have put on Jesus Christ through that means of God's grace coming to you. God's grace is a gift, freely given, not coerced. And notice, notice this, too, that grace is a gift that's given for a purpose. And that's what vor, verse 4 talks about. God's grace is given in order that we may walk in newness of life. The mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God are given to you, believer, not so that you can sin more or or keep on going on with your former way of life. God's grace is given to you in order that you may walk in a new life. The the transformation from the lifestyle of a pagan to that of a Christian is, is, Paul says, as a transformation between death and life. In his teens, James Croon got involved in, in gang, in the gang warfares in Seattle. He began using and, and selling drugs. And over the next decade and a half or so of his life, one thing led to another until he was 33 years old when he was arrested for assaulting his girlfriend. And he, he was out on bail when he went reluctantly to a church service that his sister dragged him to. But it was at that church service where James met Jesus. James realized his sin and realized that only God's grace could free him from his sin. Only in Jesus could James find purpose and meaning in his life. And at that service, James received Jesus and his life drastically changed. He, he had to finish out his prison sentence, uh, but as he went to jail, he attended seminary. He became a pastor And since he was released, he actually earned his Ph.D. He began a Bible college in Seattle, Seattle Urban Bible College. He served as a pastoral care and recovery supervisor at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. He planted a now-thriving church in the Seattle area in in a really rough and tumble neighborhood of Seattle. And James said, Despite the failures and heartache of my past, I am a new creature in Christ. The old ways are gone. Without his mercy, I would probably be dead today. Today I have the privilege of encouraging young black men who feel worthless to choose the worth they have in Christ. I considered myself worthless once, but now I am serving the living God. James's testimony is just one of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of testimonies of God's grace and mercy in transforming lives. James experienced this newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. And you too, believer, you are to walk in newness of life as a Christian. You cannot go back to your life of sin. You cannot live your life in anger or greed or gossip or lust or self-righteousness or in your arrogance. You are dead 
to those sins. Walk in the new life that Christ has given you. Walk in that new life. That's the first point this morning. A couple more that we have to go through yet as well. The second point that Paul makes in Romans 6 is that you are dead to your sin because you are alive in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin because you are alive in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 of Romans 6 are are ripe with that language of life and death. And as believers who are alive in Christ Jesus, Paul says that Jesus Christ's death has become our death. And that's really the focus of verse 5. Look at that again with me. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The death of Jesus Christ, Paul says, has become our death. He gave his life on the cross. Jesus died for you, dying in your place and on your behalf. And he did so in order that those who believe in Jesus might be united with him, united with him in baptism, that our sins might be washed away, that we might be made right before the Father. Jesus' death on the cross, there he shed his blood, and that has become our death. He has died once for all for all sin, and therefore we also can die to sin. Christ's death on the cross has become your death on the cross, and all of its power, all of its uh, uh, dominion over your life, all of its traps, those died as well. You are Dead to sin, you are alive in Christ. Being alive in Christ Jesus also means that his death has freed you from your slavery to sin. That's the emphasis of, emphasis of verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Before Christ came into our lives, Sin was an enslaving tyrant, right, who reigns over us and and is in control of our lives. But in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. Imagine it's it's 1865. You're a slave in the Deep South, right? The Emancipation Proclamation has been issued. The Civil War has ended. General Lee has surrendered to General Grant. The Confederacy is over. Slavery is now illegal. You are now free. Would you willingly go back to your former owners living in the same condition, doing the same hard work for no pay? Would you willingly go back to your life As a slave, I don't think any of us would willingly return as slaves. And so then Paul argues, why do you seek to return to the slavery of your sins? Our old self, our old flesh, our old nature, Paul says, was crucified with him that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been set free by Christ's death for us. Being dead to sin and alive to Christ also means that Christ's death brings us life. Look at verse 8. It says this. It says, We know that Christ, being raised from 
I'm sorry, that's verse 9. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If Paul says we have died with Christ, then yes, we have. If we have died with Christ, then we also have the promise of life. Just as Christ died and rose, we have the promise of eternal life, of life eternal. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, will never perish but will have the light of life. And this is something that we wait for eagerly, isn't it? Eternal life, free from sin, free from the threat of death, free from the pains and the aches and the illnesses that drag us down, free from heartbreak and misery and grief, and eternity in blissful paradise where Jesus Christ rules and reigns and where our enemy, where all of our enemies, sin, death, and the devil have been destroyed, right? Amen, Maranatha, may it be so. Come, Lord, that's what we are living for. That's what we are hoping for. And for us as followers of Jesus Christ, eternal life isn't just that heavenly or eternal thing. Eternal life begins in the here and the now. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? Not just in eternity, but now. Um, All the blessings and promises of God are yours, Christian, in Christ Jesus, in the here and now. You have the grace, you have the mercy, you have the forgiveness of Jesus now. You are God's child now. You have the promised Holy Spirit living with inside of you now. These things aren't just reserved only for your time in eternity, but you are alive in Christ Jesus now. You have died to sin. You are alive in Christ Jesus And then finally, Paul says in Romans uh, 6, verses 12 through 14, that you, Christian, you are dead to sin because you are under Christ's reign of grace, his reign of grace. Listen again to these verses and listen for the command and the promise that is given in these verses, a command that Paul gives and a promise that's found in Jesus Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What was the command in those verses there? I suppose there are a couple of them, right? But there's one prime directive. This is the command, let not sin reign. Christian, follower of Jesus, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God. Therefore, let not sin reign. Do not let sin control you. Do not let sin be a tyrant or a dictator in your life. Let not sin reign rain. And we, we all know that we still do sin, don't we, right? Every day, every hour, we know that we have an old sinful nature that clings to us, as, as Luther so famously put, as a recalcitrant donkey, as a stubborn donkey. But that donkey, that donkey doesn't have the right to rule over us, to reign over us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to battle, to fight against sin, to fight against the reign of that tyrant. And this means that when we are tempted to sin, we resist, we fight. When we're tempted to anger, 
we respond with patience. When we're tempted to gossip, we're reminded that we should be slow to speak. When we're tempted to let fear govern our lives, we we rest in the fact that the Lord God is in control of our lives and he has our best in mind. When anxiety tries to dominate our thoughts, we pray that the peace of Christ would guard our hearts and our minds. When we begin to get discouraged because we've been comparing ourselves to somebody else, maybe an influencer on social media or whatever it is, the neighbor down the street, when we begin to do that, we remind ourselves that our identity and our self-worth don't come from outside. They come from who Christ says we are. We do not allow sin in our thoughts and our words, our deeds to reign. We battle it. We fight it. And it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a, it's a war, and we are in the trenches. Some skirmishes we win, others we lose. But nevertheless, we continue to fight sin. We never give up. We never surrender to it. Let not sin reign. But there's also a glorious promise. Verse 14, look at this. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to each follower is this. Sin will not have dominion over you. To exercise right dominion over something is to have uh, power, control, authority over that situation or that person. Right? Because, Christian, you are under God's reign of grace in your life, it is impossible for sin to have dominion over you. Sin will not, sin cannot reign in your life. It has no power over you. Commentator Douglas Moo said it best, I think, when he said, for Christ to set us free not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Sin cannot have power, absolute, domineering, tyrannical power over your life. Why? Because you are dead to sin sin in Christ. You are united to Christ. You are alive in Christ Jesus. You are under his dominion in your life. You are under his reign of grace. And so as Christians, we fight. We battle. We fight the fight. We, we battle the temptations that come our way. We, we acknowledge that when we fall, we, when, when we sin, we, we repent. We confess it to the Lord. We throw ourselves daily at his mercy and his grace, knowing that Jesus Christ died for that sin, for our sin, bearing in his body on the cross all of our sin, shedding his blood for you as a sacrifice. Right? We rest in him. We resolve not to sin. And we get back on the horse and we keep going, right? Knowing that sin has no power, no dominion, no authority over you. And unless you are a perfect person, I can imagine that you can relate to this back and forth, this struggle against sin, the sin and repentance and that cycle that we are in. And Paul certainly did himself. In chapter 7, just obviously following chapter 6, in chapter 7, he would go on to share his own wrestling, his own fighting against sin. And he said, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody else relate to that, right? 
Paul could relate to the struggle. It's common with everybody. But Paul rested in the finished work of Christ on the cross in his place and on his behalf. And he starts off chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Hold those promises. <laughs> I think, I think C.S. Lewis also captured this, this back and forth, this struggle against sin. And I know this is a longer quote, uh, but I love this. It's one of, my, one of my favorite quotes. This is from a 1956 sermon that Lewis gave. And he said, I do not think any efforts of my own will can end once for all this craving for limited liabilities, this fatal reservation. Um, limited liabilities, the, the sin that he's dealing with, the struggles that he's dealing with, the, the, the false things that he's propping up to uh, believe in and things like that. And he says, nothing can end that craving, right? Only God can. I have good faith and hope that he will. Of course, I, I do not mean that I can, therefore, as they say, sit back. What God does for us, he does in us. The process of doing it will appear to me, and not falsely, to be the daily or hourly repeated exercise of my own will in renouncing this attitude, for, especially in the morning, for it grows over me like a shell each night. God is working in you, believer, to throw off that sin. And sometimes as you look at it, it doesn't look like God is doing the work. It looks like you're doing the work. You are resisting this temptation. You are not going to those websites. You are stopping this gossip, all these things, right? But it's really God who is working through you is what Lewis is saying, right? Uh, and he says, failures will be forgiven. It's acquiescence that is fatal. Acquiescence is just a fancy word for saying giving in laying down, letting the sin run over you and, and rule your life. Failures will be forgiven. Sins will be forgiven. It's acquiescence that is fatal. The permitted, regularized presence of an area in ourselves, which we still claim for our own. We must remain never on this side of death, drive out the invader of our territory, but we must be in the resistance, in the Vichy government. Uh, the Vichy government, right, was the, the puppet government that the Nazis set up in, in Paris after they overran France, right? And uh, on paper, they were the French government, but they did nothing unless Berlin gave the okay, right? And Lewis says that as we battle sin, we cannot be just that puppet of Satan. We must be in the resistance, fighting sin, fighting uh, the, 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 the tyranny of sin or the, uh, the control of sin in our our lives. And he says, this, so far as I can yet see, must be begun every day. Our meriting prayer should be, grant me to make an unflawed beginning today, for I have done nothing yet. <laughs> Lewis, again, I think captures that, will, that battle against sin for us, or yeah, that, that, that's going on in our lives, right? We know that that battle against sin has been won ultimately for us by Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus laid down his life, crucifying with him our old nature, bearing our sins, taking the penalty we deserve. Sin has been defeated. We are set free. Sin cannot control us, <laughs> but yet we battle it every day, every hour, with only the strength that he can provide. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we again thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us, Lord. And as we go through our life, we are tempted in every way to sin, Lord. And, and you know this. Jesus, you know this well too. You were a man like us. You, had, you faced every temptation like us. Yet you were without sin. And we know that we can never be without sin, but Lord, may that never be an excuse to sin. Lord, help us as we go through our lives to battle the sin uh, that is before us. Lord, whatever that be, may be, whatever context we are facing, help us to battle that sin. Help us to rest in your finished work on the cross for us. Help us to resist temptation, fight and battle against sin, ultimately knowing that the battle is already won. You have won. You are victorious. And we wait for the day that you come and make everything right. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.